It's the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, brought to you by Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hamper at their brewery location and in the heart of Delco at Jamie's House of Music. Ray Coob here with my partner in crime, Marcus, and we're going to do something a little bit different. Not that we haven't dug deep into great albums before, but we've kind of noticed something we call Game Changers, and we're going to dig into our first one here on the podcast this week. I remember back in 1987 being in college and hearing the opening riff to the opening track and being blown away. I looked at the radio and said, what the fuck is this? I know that for a fact because I was listening to a lot more of the romantic alternative, the cure and stuff like that. And then I hear this and I'm just like, whoa, I, I mean, seriously got excited and had to know who it was. And a friend of mine was like, yeah, this is this band out of L.A. called Guns N' Roses. You got to check them out. They are incredible. I had kind of a one-two punch introduction to Appetite for Destruction, our Game Changer album that we're looking into this week. First was that Welcome to the Jungle moment with radio, and the other was the video for Sweet Child of Mine on MTV. I watched more MTV in those days, but I'd heard about them, and I saw them, and I heard them, and I went, well, this is going to change just about fucking everything once people catch on. You changed my world as far as rock and roll goes, and I know there are millions and millions of other people just like me who had changed in one way or another. I have to believe that when younger children today hear it, I think it's one of those mind blowers. I think it has aged very well, and I still think the first time you hear it, it kicks your ass. Everything you just said are basically the qualifications for being a game changer on this podcast. So let's look at Appetite for Destruction. If you really want to know the story leading up to Appetite, you've got to read the book, Nothing But a Good Time. We've interviewed the guys who wrote that book, Richard Beanstalk and Tom Bourgeois, and in there, how they became this band and met that guy, how Hollywood Rose became Guns N' Roses and all these different bands before and after and in between and all the different players, how Tracy Guns fits into it. All of that is all explained in that book. <laughs> A great book. And we have two podcasts you can check out at imbalancedhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts and listen to our conversations with those guys. Right. We did a first episode when it was first released and then a follow-up to catch up. And in that follow-up, we also talked with Jeff Pilson about that time period and what he's been up to. So check them both out. Like Marcus said, wherever you get your podcasts. But they do come together and from all different places, right? Axel had arrived from Indiana, and uh, Slash was an L.A. kid, man. He was a street rat. 
<laughs> Duff had come down from Seattle where he'd been in a bunch of bands to try his hand at being an L.A. guy. Like 250 bands or something like that. Yeah. In, in, in two months. <laughs> yeah, but it shows how much he loves music and how much he loved what he was doing. Isn't Izzy Stradlin an Indiana boy also? Is he or isn't he? Ah. <laughs> yeah, I think he said uh, Lafayette, Indiana is where he originally came from. Yeah. And he and Axel go way back, way back. And Steven Adler, he was born in Cleveland and has a lot of family in Delaware, I think in the Philadelphia area. So they came literally from all over. Slash was the only one that was from around there. He had an interesting life growing up if you haven't read his book, do it. And that's how they all come together. Uh, with one half of one name, because uh, Tracy Guns wasn't even in the band at that point. Discovered and signed to Geffen Records by Tom Zutat to get in the studio with producer Mike Klink. going to make this whole mess work right yeah and they went with the guy who re was relatively unknown for some reason somebody they felt that could that was chill and could remain composed during dealing with the band because reading about appetite for destruction and the making of it the word that kept coming up from the label people and the people that weren't in the band that were involved was dangerous Dangerous was a word that just kept coming up over and over again. So they felt that this uh, young guy that was really calm and really together would do a good job remaining composed and being able to do what he needed to do during the insanity of Appetite. I mean, he'd worked with Triumph and Survivor, but this was something different. This was him trying something different, to be part of something that was on the new edge of what was going on out there. But it would open tons of doors for him and would help the bands that Mike worked with down the line as, as things started to unfold quickly. After uh, the release of Appetite for Destruction with Whitesnake and Megadeth, uh, he would work extensively on Use Your Illusion, both of them. And that I went to see in Toronto, I Mother Earth worked with them, and that's where I ran into him at the release party in Toronto. Clank was just one of those guys, the right guy in the right place at the right time, and I wonder if he felt that way all the way through the process, because it had to be nuts in the studio making this record, right? Absolutely. When everybody's using the word dangerous over and over again, you know that it was crazy. They spent some ungodly amount, like $350,000 to make the record. So one of the things that I read was that they were also a lot of times because their sleep schedules were different, like Slash would get in and be in the studio from like 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, Axel would be in there from like 7 to midnight doing his vocals and then Izzy would wait until he was needed for overdubs and he would be working and working on his stuff so it was almost like they had the studio open 24-7 and people were coming in. 
that's what it took. That's what got it done. And one of the things that helped them once they got it done was the song Welcome to the Jungle being placed in the Deadpool, that Clint Eastwood movie. I love that movie. That's the trouble with this prison. They let anybody in here. I don't like scum like you trying to kill me, Gennaro. Sounds to me like this Deadpool thing is making you a little paranoid, Callahan. Do you mind, gentlemen? I happen to be at a funeral. I'd like to talk to you about your list. It's no big secret. Most of the cast and crew knew about it. I didn't tell you because the Deadpool is just a harmless game. Sounds pretty sick to me. And I remember thinking, man, whoever thought of this at the time really gets extra points in their bonus because it really kind of put them right in the middle of it as the band was breaking. The timing was perfect. What better way to lay down a meaty rock track than with a meaty movie detective? (laughs) The whole Deadpool concept was rock and roll as a backdrop, so that was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Partially because of the discussions that we have, Marcus we're really clear on how much effort and energy goes into a band getting to the point where Guns N' Roses were when they were getting ready to record and release Appetite for Destruction. And here they are on the edge. They've become one of the L.A. scene's hottest bands there in the uh, middle section of the 80s, heading into the later part of the 80s. And the album comes out. It's So Easy, a song you couldn't get released on U.S. radio. It's so it's so fucking easy and you can fuck off (laughs) but somehow it went over in the uk as their first single there didn't really you know take off but it went over and in the u.s welcome to the jungle was smartly chosen and issued as the first single that october and there was a music video and that got them into the mix for the deadpool thing i guess and it got them in front of an audience that wouldn't normally listen to Guns N' Roses, but I would guess, like me, probably blown away by what they were hearing and seeing. And what they were hearing and seeing was an amazing debut album from a band that would go on to impact all hard rock sounds over the next 10 to 15 years, and definitely just really beginning to make their own mark here in 1988. Marcus, they're right on the edge of making it and breaking out big. So while we ponder that and that moment, why don't we have a cold one, head over to Crooked Eye, and then come back and talk about Sweet Child and all the amazing songs on Appetite for Destruction on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Ah, the taste of Crooked Eye. It's like coming home for the holidays, man. And by the way, it'll be the holidays before you know it, Marcus. Getting into the fall season, and so the brews change 
and some different things appear on the board. Hey, there's a lot going on, and as always, the best way to find out what's happening at the brewery location in Hapro is on their Facebook. But one thing you know is there's the Blues Jam every Wednesday night hosted by the Crooked Soul Band. And I've been noticing a lot of new names and a lot of new acts appearing recently at Crooked Eye. So go in and see who's playing this weekend. And don't forget, if you're in Delco, Jamie's House of Music is a place where you can get Crooked Eye beers as well. Fresh brews, PA spirits, and wine, as well as all the fun of the music at both Jamie's House of Music and at the brewery location in Hatboro. Crooked Eye Brewery, right in the heart of Hatboro, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. It's Game Changers, Appetite for Destruction on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, albums that changed the game, and this week, Guns N' Roses' debut. You know, Marcus, that song, you hear it, you know it instantly from that opening note. Sweet Child of Mine comes out as the second single in the U.S., written for the daughter of Don Everly, Aaron Everly, who was Axel's girlfriend at the time. We talked about that briefly in the Sibling Rivalries episode about the Everly Brothers. It was uh, not something that I don't think Axel would be proud of today, what happened between those two. Uh, And Don wanted to kill him for it. You know, he was messing with his little girl. And Slash said he hated the song, but it was their biggest hit. What are you going to do when a song that's not one of your favorites out of all those songs that you recorded isn't one of your favorites, but there it is. I found this really cool quote from Axel talking about writing this song and how it was put together, and I found this to be really fascinating because he said he had written this poem, reached a dead end with it, and put it on the shelf. Then Slash and Izzy got working together on a song, and I came in. Izzy hit a rhythm, and all of a sudden, this poem that I had shelved popped into my head, and it all just came together. A lot of rock bands are too fucking wimpy to have any sentiment or any emotion in any of their stuff unless they're in pain. It's the first positive love song I've ever written, but I never had anyone to write anything that positive about, I guess. So those were the singles focus there out of the gates for Geffen. You know, I was doing a show called Rockers back then on MMR in Philadelphia. And I didn't want to play the singles. There were already two when I discovered them, right? MTV can play those. Let them do their thing with that. Let's find something else. Well, I'd already listened to the CD a little, but I didn't listen closely. And when I listened to It's So Easy... Night Train, or even Out to Get Me. All those songs had so much cursing in them that I immediately had to stop and go, I can't play any of these fuckers. Your daddy works in Now that mommy's not around. She used to love her heroin, but now she's underground. 
And that leads around to the first track on side two, which was My Michelle, the first song I ever played from Guns N' Roses on the radio. So it always holds an extra place in my heart, you know? But think about that album. You start with Welcome to the Jungle, which we've talked about. It's So Easy is the second song, and they wrote that with a friend named Aaron Arking. I didn't really know him or of him, but apparently he wrote on a number of their songs through the years. Duff talked about this in the oral history of the making of the album. It's an account of a time when Arkeen and Duff and also the rest of the band were kind of going through. They didn't have money, but they had a lot of hangers on and girls they could live off of. Things <laughs> were just too easy. There's an emptiness. It's so easy. I see your sister in a Sunday dress. So he was part of the scene, and because of that, he was getting some writing credit. And when you're getting points on that album, I imagine Wes did okay from that. Oh, yeah. Songs like It's So Easy were played as deep cuts on so many AOR stations. Now, the next song on side one, Night Train, is one of my favorites for sure. When you play it for Luca, do you explain to him that it's about a bottle of wine <laughs> and, and not trains? Can you explain that to him? <laughs> And I know you couldn't tell him what Train Kept a Rolling was really all about because, you know, hey, fuck it. But uh, did you tell him it was about wine and not about an actual train? Under no circumstances did I. I told him it was about riding the train at night and trying to get to that next destination. Yeah, that's actually the truth. So nice job of stretching it, Dad, to not say <laughs> it's about getting blasted on cheap wine. <laughs> I just didn't say what that next destination was. I'll tell you what, man. It was a wild time in L.A. back when Guns N' Roses came to fruition, when they formed up and, and got signed. And the momentum for them really spread out uh, to other bands. But a lot of bands were also their rivals. And uh, I think that uh, the drug use and the party atmosphere led to some paranoia, leading to a song called Out to Get Me.
They're out to get me. I'm fucking innocent. <laughs> me thinks thou dost protest too much, sir. <laughs> but it is a pretty hot goddamn song. It is, and it's one that could easily be played on rock radio a lot more as a deep cut. It is a good tune. Ballsy, man. Better than some of the other stuff that came later, I would say. Despite the widespread use of editing to take out all offending FCC violations, it still hasn't shown up on playlists too much. But the next song on the album, sure as hell, has, and we love playing it unedited on Rockers, as we did with so much before uh, Janet Jackson's nipple slip. Mr. Brownstone is perhaps the most perfect song they've written. The riffs, the words are about Brownstone, which is a euphemism for really good heroin. A little used to do it, but I little didn't do it, so I did a little more and more as lyrical fodder against the counter rhythms of the music and the guitars, the way that they piece together all the parts of that song. Mr. Brownstone, a masterpiece, ironically, about a terrible thing, terrible. In the oral history making of the album, Axel had said when they moved out of their place at Fountain and La Cienega, he was the last one to leave, and he found this piece of yellow paper wadded up in the corner where Izzy and Stephen's room was. It had the lyrics to Brownstone on it. Axel read it and said, this is great. They said they had music for it, and then they ended up rehearsing the song, and it came together. And Axel makes it sound so easy. Izzy said that it can mean a million different things to a million different people, so it kind of opens your mind and gives you a chance to relate to it in a personal way, I guess. When I hear there was that line about a little used to do it, but a little turned to more and more, that can only be about one thing, and, and um, That's before heroin. it's cut, a lot of heroin looks brown. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I'll uh, take Izzy's quote at face value and say the best song maybe on this whole record is the next one, the, the one that closes side one, six minutes and 46 seconds of Paradise. Talking about Paradise City. Guns and Roses, Appetite for Destruction. That's what we're talking about here on Game Changers on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Uh, the Game Changers is going to be primarily albums from what we've been talking about, but other things could qualify. Absolutely. A tour, a live show could be a game yeah, changer. But it's got to affect everybody. Yes. So that's a game changer. And this one did affect everybody. 
Slash said that this was a full collaboration and that the best songs that this band did were collaborations. And if you I listen, that. It, yeah. I agree too because their chemistry, which you hear through their album, is magnificent and wonderful. And there's a magic element to their chemistry and what they did. And Paradise City is a masterpiece. It's a guitar lick that people also will always know forever. And that's where you flip it over, man. Now, in the old days, you had side A or side one, side two or side B. They had side G for side one and side R for side two. So it was G and R were the sides. I thought that was clever. Uh, Vinyl. Uh, Remember vinyl days? Tell you what, somewhere in the middle of this part of the song cycle, before we really get around to use your illusion, my friend Terrible Terry White gets a package in the mail from Axel, and it's vinyl. This is what made me think of it. It was like gray, white, and pink vinyl, and on it were the demos of what they were working on, including a demo for November Rain, which we would play on the Rocker Show two years before it was released. Year and a half, two years, yeah. You played the demo to November Rain before the album was released? Fuck yeah, we did. Dude, that's fucking amazing. <laughs> he had too much fun, wow. I gotta tell you. When I look into your eyes, I can see a lover's dream. But when I'm holding you, don't you know I feel the same? Well, I mentioned, speaking of rockers, My Michelle was the first song that I played from them on that show, and I think MMR was all over those first two singles, though, pretty early on, earlier than than a lot of rock stations were, because it was obvious what was going on there, uh, teamed with the power of MTV. Uh, After that was Think About You, and I really love that song. Axel's voice is sweet. Herb, the playing, the way everything works together. The energy is sweet. Quick love song about drugs, sex, Hollywood, and money. All the elements for life in the fast lane. (laughs) And a hit single helps, and Sweet Child of Mine is just that.
Mom, who's your favorite song? For as heavy of a song as it was, it crossed over into pop radio, and it really blew some minds, because I can guarantee you, knowing that pop radio had nothing like it at that time, people were going, what the fuck is this? All the other hard rock bands were getting onto the radio with ballads. They weren't getting on with their hard rock songs, except for stations that were rocking harder than the rest. And that was starting to happen more and more. But there you go. That's where you are, right in the middle as they're breaking out, too, man. And what an anthem it is through the decades, through the ages. It's been covered and performed all different places by all different artists. Iconic in its own right. Sweet Child of Mine. A game changer in and to itself within the game changer here. <laughs> Talking about Guns and Roses. She's got a smile that it seems to me reminds me of childhood. Memories where everything was as fresh as the bright blue sky. And, you know, I'm sure that at least, I don't know, a third of our audience has at one point said, you're crazy to their radio or to their device when they're listening to this podcast. And that's the name of the next song on side two of Appetite for Destruction. It's good stuff, man. They're just kicking out all these great songs as a group. They're mm-hmm. kicking these things out, delivering them. And I know that Izzy uh, gets credit for a lot of this stuff, especially on the Use Your Illusion albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were working together. Somebody would have a, a riff and somebody would have a phrase and somebody had a poem in the back about their girlfriend. And next thing you know, that they're in the mix. And another guy got into the mix was uh, a member of Hollywood Rose, Chris Weber. He's mentioned in the book, Nothing But a Good Time. He's quoted in there that he gets credit on um, Anything Goes on side two because he co-wrote it with the guys at a key point and they're hanging out together. Jumping back to your crazy, I feel like that song did a really good job and it shows the bridge between punk and hard rock. And I feel like because of Duff's influence with the punk scene, I think you hear a little bit of the punk groove in the album. And then they go all over the place showing their skills as rock and rollers with Anything Goes, which is a great song as well. And I did not realize until we dug deeper into it that this was one of the songs that they had a little bit of outside help from, but a great track on the album. Really good points about the punk influence and Duff bringing it in because that was part of his pedigree from his Seattle days. And it brings it all around after anything goes. 
to the culmination of this album, and you got to finish strong, right? <laughs> One of the songs that had been around for a while, back to the earlier days of when they were all coming together, was Rocket Queen, and it's kind of an ode to all the girls who populated the Sunset Strip every night, making it a rock star paradise. If I Isn't this the song where there is the pre-recorded sex act in it from the soundboard? Uh, might be this. Yes, they're owed to the queen of the underground scene, right? Yeah. And, and it, uh, it is not just inferred sex. There's actual sex going on. Uh, they were recording. It was a bit of bacchanalia, I think, when they were making this record. It's another reason why I think Clink was a good candidate to help pull it all together. He didn't come in with a lot of producer uh, preconceived notions. He was going to make this record, you know, one way or another, death, jail, or rock and roll, right? And, and they were all in <laughs> on that kind of a Michael Monroe edge. I think that that's what led to the atmosphere and the energy, and that includes Rocket Queen, which you can make the argument for maybe it being the best song on the album. And it couldn't be a single. For the same reason that the original album cover couldn't be the album cover. Oh, yes. I was reading about that because of the original painting. You were not getting away with putting that on an album cover. You know, we've talked about what the atmosphere was in those days, right? Absolutely. There was no way you were getting to put that kind of an image on there. So they came up with what we got, which is what we know. And it wasn't until a little later that we found out about the whole thing with the alternate cover. Trying to understand the reason for the substitution first was not easy. Then we got to see Robert Williams' painting, which was called Appetite for Destruction. Now you look that up and you see the actual image that they wanted to use. And I think he was in on using that powers that be at Geffen probably said maybe not absolutely zero chance of flying <laughs> but you gotta admit that that's the LA scene and that's what they were trying for you know they were trying for anything to push limits musically socially image wise They'd already made a record that was going to push their limits and make them a name. They didn't need that. And I think that might have been the logic that kicked in. You've already got an album that's going to make you guys household names. Why cause controversy when it's not necessary? And by the way, we'll release that idea later as a news story, which will only increase the legend of Guns <laughs> and Roses. Yeah, something like increase the impact. Something like twenty or thirty thousand albums of that original pressing were printed. Somehow They're, I didn't get one. I didn't get one either. But if I were to come across one, I think I would probably snap it up. But you're right as far as the controversy goes. There was no reason for them to add any negative controversy to an album that's as close to perfect as perfect gets. 
And when I think comparatively, song-wise, this is the strongest stuff, song after song, all the way through, of any of their records. There is not a bad note on this record. Not one bad note. Every single second of this album is ear candy. The team of Thompson and Barbiero, well-known for their mixing and mastering skills, were brought in with Mike Klink to do the mix. And that's where that comes from, buddy. Those fellas... Thompson and Barbiero, they finished a lot of amazing records. We can talk about that one time. Oh, we definitely will have to get into talking about all these producers and mixers and some of the great work that they've done. Lining up the charts of the day almost seems futile. You hardly need to, right? This album dominated the charts once it got there. It's not so much the chart achievements in all the territories around the world. That happened at different paces everywhere. It's the long-term impact. Felt certainly in the first three to four years after its release in a really amazingly strong, white-hot way. But the long-term impact, the kids it's influenced and inspired to form bands, to pick up guitars... It all comes from 18 times platinum in the U.S., four times platinum in the U.K., in Switzerland, Netherlands, New Zealand, Japan, Germany, double platinum in Italy, four times platinum in Denmark, diamond in Canada. That's over a million in Canada. Multi-platinum in Australia and Argentina, platinum in Austria and Brazil. You're starting to get the picture. Worldwide bad-ass Selling Max everywhere through the years. 30 million plus copies sold worldwide. That's why they are a game changer. This album is our debut game changer, a new concept within the concept of an imbalanced history of rock and roll. Nice one. That was your your call there, buddy. Good call. Thanks, man. Also, uh, Lon Friend of Rip Magazine fame has cited this album as a huge game changer in so many ways and has been on the Guns N' Roses bandwagon since the very beginning. And you know actually, why? You know why? You know why? Because of how many times he also set a world record for how many times he was on Guns N' Roses expense reports. You- Trust me. Oh, I believe you. One time they made him go out, introduce the band on stage wearing Slash's boots, Slash's hat, and he had to wear only his underwear. And having traveled a little with Lon and spent some time with him through the years, I would pay to see pictures of that. And he's got great stories in his books about Guns N' Roses as well. So between some of the writers and nothing but a good time and some of the uh, you can get some great information about guns and roses and appetite for destruction and plug into rip magazine they're still online even though they don't print man and lon still he's still got the heart man so even though we're all starting to uh, add a, a little uh, silver to the main and and in lon if you're hearing this phone home we want to have you on the podcast yeah we definitely want to talk to you about your uh time in the big game-changing eras of rock and roll imbalance history at gmail.com that's our email address lawn or anybody else you got a comment about what we're talking about any other thoughts on appetite for destruction and you can also plug in via social media just search imbalance history by the way i, I found this out if you just search imbalance history anywhere we pop up now Really? Like on, on Pandora and Ooh. on Google. 
so That's you don't have to do up, the, so you don't have to do the full thing in balanced history of rock and roll anymore. Well, you do, you don't have to. No, if you type in balanced history, most times it's going to pop up before you get to. Cool. Oh, that's new. <laughs> that's Googleicious, baby. Cool. Hey, before we go, one more thing. I just got a simple question for you. What is your favorite song on Appetite for Destruction? What? Are you kidding me? No. You you think I can pick one out of these twelve amazing songs? Well. I- Sometimes Jeez. albums this good have one song that sort of resonates a little stronger than the others. All right. Now, obviously, you've been thinking about this, and you're catching me a little bit off guard. You mentioned that we might do this. Um, what's yours? Mine, so I don't pick yours. Mine is still the same as from the first time still I heard Still the same, it. but that's from Bob Seger. No, 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 no. Stop. <laughs> I still the same from the first time I heard Appetite for Destruction, and that's your crazy. I still love that song more than any of the other ones on the album. And maybe it's because it's the one I know that I definitely cannot ever play on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. If you bleeped out all the curses, it would be like a hip-hop song on the radio. Yeah. (laughs) Really would. So, yeah, that's my favorite song by far. And it's it hasn't changed. I, I, I could do, you know, and we uh, we did a, like a Shotgun 5 favorites. I could do that. I know I could do that. But to pick one of these, I'll pick my favorite and then the best song. How's that? Deal. My favorite goes unedited whenever I play it because sometimes you just got to let it fly. We mentioned it while we were talking earlier. It's the one that's code for heroin, Mr. Brownstone. Even though I don't like the subject, it does create awareness of the evil part of heroin. And that's why I would say Mr. Brownstone is my favorite. But the best song really, I think, has to be the best pure song is Paradise City. It's just an amazing song. That's why it's been played 10,000 times just when I've been on the radio. <laughs> You've spun it that many times. I'm not surprised. I know. Well, yeah, I, know. I was we... thinking about it. I, was doing it. I can't really do the math off the top of my head, but, you know, you do 16 years, twice, three times a week. Maybe you do the math. It's gotcha. a lot. Yep. And uh, I think that um, it, it is the best pure song out of all of them. And my, but my, Brownstone's my favorite because we used to get away with playing that unedited, and I still play it, the edited version, at 93.3 WMMR, available online at WMMR.com. <laughs> so that's where we both work uh, when we're not doing this crazy podcast. People might think, well, these two bums, man, they don't do anything. <laughs> and, and they're half right. <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for our first edition of Game Changers. Again, well played, my friend. I'm Ray Koob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is the Imbalanced Game-Changing History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 